0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Knoxville, Tennessee, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Knoxville. Plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Knoxville. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and this is another episode of the Real Estate Financial Planner Comparison Series of webinars, podcasts, whatever we're doing here. So today tries to address the question that people have of, should I buy an owner-occupant property or should I keep renting myself? If I am trying to achieve financial independence or I'm trying to maximize my net worth, like what is going to be better for me? Because you would argue, hey, look, if I decide I'm going to go buy a rental property, if I'm going to go buy a series of rental properties, that distracting myself and buying an owner occupant property first could actually hurt me. It would slow me down. It's better for me to take the money that I was saving up to buy my rental than it would be to buy an owner occupant property. And not only that, but in some markets, putting 5% down in order to buy an owner-occupant property means that your monthly payment is going to be higher than if you just continued to rent, right? Because you go put 5% down, you're probably going to have private mortgage insurance, and the payments plus the taxes plus the insurance on that particular property is going to be higher than if you just rented yourself, right? Because that's going to be what is typical in your marketplace. or you could argue, hey, if I go rent, my rent is going to continue to increase with inflation so that it's going to limit how much I'm able to save over time. Because if I decide to rent and I don't buy a property and lock in a good part of my monthly living expense in the form of a mortgage payment, sure, taxes and insurance go up, but the mortgage payment itself, because you're getting a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, that's going to stay static. And so the amount, the overall net kind of rent a rent equivalent I have of buying an owner-occupant property to move in is going to stay low and actually get lower. It may be higher at the beginning, but overall, the payment for owning a property tends to stay, tends to go down over time because the mortgage payment, the principal interest part of the mortgage payment is fixed. And with the rising cost of things, inflation, that tends to look cheaper over time. And at some point, those lines tend to cross, right, where it tends to be more expensive to buy a property to begin with. And even with taxes and insurance going up, the net overall cost to own a home tends to go down a little bit over time. Whereas when you buy it, when you rent the property, you just live there, the cost of rent just tends to keep pace with inflation to keep going up and, up and up and up and up and up. And eventually those lines cross and it becomes better for you to have bought a property but is it better for you to rent and use that money to acquire rentals or is it better for you to buy a property, slow your roll a little bit acquiring the first rental and, and then you know, eventually buying rental properties, but you're living in a property that you also are an owner of. And then there's the whole discussion of eventually the property that you're living in, if you go and you buy one, you no longer have a mortgage on it at all which then even reduces what you need in order to be considered financially independent. If you were earning $10,000, if, if you were spending $10,000 a month on all your expenses and $2,000 a month of that was your mortgage payment, well, eventually when your mortgage payment goes away, you no longer need to achieve $10,000 a month in passive income from your investments in order to be considered financially independent. Instead, now, because your mortgage payment is paid off, and you no longer have that $2,000 a month mortgage payment, you really only need $8,000 a month to be considered financially independent. Sure, you still need taxes and insurance and maintenance and all that other stuff on your property that you live in, but you don't have that mortgage payment anymore. So your overall cost in order to be financially independent, the bar has been lowered. So all of these things come into play when we ask ourselves today, is it better to rent or buy an owner-occupant property for 5% down when we're otherwise buying 25% down rentals? That is what we will plan on discussing today and what we'll go into detail on. So what I did is I modeled this for over 300 U.S. cities. And so each city's got its own home price, rent, taxes, insurance, the amount of money that people earn in each city is a little bit different it's basically enough for them to go buy a property in that in that city so that we don't have somebody uh you know i, I don't standardize the income so that somebody who would otherwise be able to buy a property in like mobile alabama would uh, not be able to buy a property in la so we do adjust for income but when we adjust for income we also adjust what they need in order to be considered financially independent so if we give someone a higher income it means that their threshold for being financially independent also has gone up it's commensurate with the income that they were earning they have to replace their job income in order to be considered financially independent it's another way of saying that okay so we modeled this for 300 cities um and you will see which one is better because i think there's a debate right which one of those factors is going to be the most powerful what's going to be the biggest impact and what is going to be the biggest limitation for someone wanting to achieve financial independence And then not only financial independence, but which one leaves you with the highest net worth and which one's riskiest? Because I think all of those things are factors in which one we do, okay? So in both scenarios, kind of like we're comparing A to B, they're gonna be buying 25% down payment rentals. The idea is that the strategy is you're gonna save up 25% down, plus some reserves and all that other stuff. And you're gonna go buy rental properties with that. The difference is gonna be one person's going to rent The other person is going to buy an owner-occupant property with 5% down first, okay? So that's going to be the comparison. So the 5% down owner-occupant first, then 25% down rentals, they're going to save up until they can buy a 5% down owner-occupant property to live in, then they're going to live in that property forever. Then they save up until they could buy a rental property with 25% down, plus closing costs, plus reserves on every property that they own, okay? Including their personal expenses. And they will repeat that until they have up to a maximum of nine rental properties, each that they bought with 25% down. With the other strategy, remain a renter yourself, then 25% down rentals, uh, which I'm calling 25% down, no owner occupant, no OO. Then uh, you remain a renter for the entire time and your rent goes up with inflation, just like the rent on the properties you're buying. Uh, You buy 25% down rentals when you've saved enough for a down payment plus closing costs plus six months of reserves for both your personal expenses and reserves on all properties you own. And you also still need to be able to qualify for that loan for 45% debt to income ratio. So all the qualifications for buying the 25% down are the same regardless of which strategy. Just in one case, we're buying a 5% down, owner-occupant property first, which could impact their ability to be qualified to buy the rental property. Because if you're buying a property with 5% down, then you need to be able to cover that payment. And if it's higher, that could limit when you can buy your rental. You may have enough for down payment, but your DTI may not be in line. And that actually is calculated in our modeling. So realize that that could be a factor for some cities. Okay. I put the URL on the screen. If you want to go, uh, you know, dive deeper into the charts and see the results for your specific city, because I'm going to do the aggregate. But if you want to drill down and see it, uh, I'll put the I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's also on the video right here. So if you want to go look at that. All right. So in order to be considered financially independent, what they need to have is the income from their rental properties, net of all expenses, and the income they have from investing money in the stock market, which any extra money they have, we assume that it's invested in the stock market. But any income they have coming from the stock market um, needs to exceed their personal expenses. And so we calculate the money from the stock market as the amount that they have invested times the safe withdrawal rate, and then we convert that to monthly. So if they have a million dollars, and you're using the 4% safe withdrawal rate, which is what we use, they're generating about $40,000 a year from any money that they have invested in the stock market. You divide that by 12, and that's about what we credit them to see if they're financially independent uh, when we're doing that calculation. For the rental property income, we basically take all the income from rent and any other income they get, and we subtract out all the expenses, including vacancy, principal payment, interest part of the payment, taxes, PMI, uh, any property owner's insurance, maintenance, and management. So we've tracked out all those expenses on the property, and whatever they're left over is a net positive cash flow. So those two things combined, in the, for the sake of this modeling, is what counts. If you're doing other modeling, we also would count normally Social Security, uh, any annuities that they have, and any pensions that they have. But in this case, that doesn't apply. There's none of those that get applied in this particular set of modeling that we did. Okay. All right, so assumptions. So each city's modeling uses their own median home prices and the estimated rents on those properties. Um, I'm not an expert on all 304 cities that we basically did this modeling for. So if you happen to go drill down into your city and you're like, James, you know your numbers are off a little bit, You know the uh, rents are a little bit higher or the, the property values are a little higher or taxes are a little bit lower or whatever it is that you think is off, reach out to me and we can make those corrections, rerun all the numbers and it'll update everything for us, okay? So go ahead and reach out if you have that there. Also, we did not apply any of the 88 strategies that we have to improve cash flow. You know, kind of known for these 88 strategies that we have for massively improving cash flow on rental properties, and we did not apply any of those strategies at all. So this is sort of just like out of the box, not optimized strategies. Okay. Now the job income, as I mentioned, does vary based on the city, so that they can afford a property in that market. But we do consider that to determine whether they are financially independent because they have to replace that job income. So for those who much is given, the amount that they're earning from income, much is also expected. So if you're living in a city that you know, the properties are cheaper, you don't have to make as much money, and you don't have to replace as much money in order to be financially independent. When you live in these more expensive cities, you do have to earn more money. Okay, uh, We start with just enough down payment to buy the 5% down owner-occupant property. Even if they're not buying the owner-occupant property, everybody starts with the same amount to try to make this even. Okay. So that's sort of like a head start to get them to that first 25% down payment if they're not buying the owner occupant. Otherwise, they have enough to buy that owner occupant property pretty much upfront because they give them, we give them 5% down plus uh, 2% in closing costs to help them acquire the property. So um, basically, that would be what they need. So they still need reserves. So it may not be that they're buying it in the initial month. Uh, When they're doing the nomad model, which they're not, they would be moving out of their properties, but they're not doing that in this case. So I'm going to make a change here. All right. There we go. So interest rates. So when buying the owner-occupant property, we assume they're getting an interest rate of 6.5% when they put 5% down. But in addition to that, they will have private mortgage insurance. That private mortgage insurance is because they put less than 20% down and that would actually go away once they get below 80% loan-to-value. So it would be there until they get the 80% loan of value, then that would drop off, and that would make their housing costs a little bit less at that point. When they're buying rental properties, because they're putting 25% down, their interest rate is estimated to be 6.75, okay? And they do not have PMI in that case. When they have any extra money that they have while they're waiting to do stuff with it, would be invested in the stock market, and they're earning 7% on their stock market investments. And I modeled this out for 100 years. If you want to see uh, all my assumptions, you can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, pick your city, or pick one of the special reports and drill down you can see all the assumptions I use for my modeling. All right, so let's get to it. So financial independence achieved. So which one do you think is going to be better? Is it going to be better for someone to actually buy an owner-occupant property? move in, live there, and then start saving up to buy 25% down properties? Or is it going to be better for them to just remain a renter, start saving up for their 25% down properties, and do that strategy? Well, I will tell you that after modeling this for 304 cities, it is way better, way, way, way better for them to buy the owner-occupant property. In fact, in 292 of the 304 cities, it is better for them to have actually bought the owner-occupant property moved in, and then started saving for their 25% down properties and acquiring that way. Buying that owner-occupant property made a huge difference, okay? 292 cities out of 304, like 96% of the time, it was better for you to buy the owner-occupant property. In only one city, was it better for you to be a renter? In 11 cities, it was the same. It didn't matter. But in one city, it was better for you to be a renter. So go figure, okay? So this shows you like the when the people achieve financial independence. And one of the things I want to point out is there's a lot of them that the reason it's better is because they paid off that owner-occupant property, and that's what moved them over the edge to being financially independent. This one big peak right here is when people had an owner-occupant property, and because they bought that very early on, and about 30 years later is when they paid that thing off, that means that because they paid off their owner-occupant property, they no longer have a mortgage payment. And so the amount that they need in order to be financially independent drops by whatever that amount of their mortgage payment was. So if they needed $8,000 to be financially independent and the mortgage payment was $1,500, now they only need $6,500 in order to be considered financially independent. And sometimes as soon as they just pay off that property, then it moves them over the edge because they were already at $6,500. They weren't at the 8000 they needed. Maybe they're at 6700 But as soon as that property gets paid off, then they actually trigger being financially independent. And so you have a bunch of them happen right then, as soon as they pay off that owner-occupied property. You don't get that effect when you are a renter. When you are renting yourself, you never have your property get paid off. You are always paying rent on that property. I've been watching, um, I've been watching a new documentary series about finances on Netflix. Won't say which one. But one of the things they discuss on there is this idea of it's okay to rent. It's okay to not buy property. And while I totally agree it is okay to not buy property um, and that is okay to rent, you don't get this benefit if you rent. You don't get this benefit of having a house that eventually gets paid off if you rent. Now you could, you could come at this from another way, right? Like I'm going off on a tangent here, but you could come at this from another way. You could say, look, I'm going to rent and I'm going to take the, the money that I had extra that I didn't have to pay for my property, which eventually those lines cross anyway. But you know, the, the, the extra cost it is of buying the property early on. Um, and you could decide to invest that in something else like, you know, stocks or other real estate or crypto or whatever you want to do. I mean, I'm not going to judge you, you can do whatever you want with your money, but if you decide to go do that, and then you take your money and you save up enough, and eventually you buy a free and clear property, I mean, you can get the same effect. It's not like it has to be that you bought the property and you had a mortgage on it. Or you could save up enough money so that the payment is lower than renting. You know, you can not put 5% down. You put 20% down, 30% down, 40% down, 50% down, um, and actually have your payment be less. Employ some of your capital in order to lower the payment or buy down the interest rate to achieve the same thing, right? These are all part of the strategies you could do. To kind of improve your cash flow, one of the ways to improve cash flow is to reduce the expenses you have in your property, lower your monthly payment, another way, right? Okay, so I've diverged enough. So this just shows you how much different it is for things. And you know, most of the time it's different for, I don't know, I'd say less than 10 years, right? Because that's a difference of 10 years or so. Um, and it tends to increase the more expensive the property is. It tends to be faster, a larger amount faster, the more expensive property you have. Some of the earlier ones, it's a little bit faster, but not that much faster uh, based on home price, okay? Um, And here's where it was a really inexpensive property where it was better for you to have rented. So it was like a, you know, probably sub $100,000 property market where it was better for you to do that, okay? So let's talk about net worth. We talked about how fast you can get to financial independence, but like how much net worth? Is, Is it better for you to have been a renter? You'll get higher net worth? Well, in 291 cities out of the 304 that we did, then buying a property gave you a higher net worth at year 40. So you would be better off financially in terms of net worth if you also bought an owner-occupant property as well. You know, you see these uh, studies done by the U.S. Census and I don't know if they've updated it recently, uh, but the last one I saw was just from several years ago. The difference in net worth between a renter And a homeowner was like $270,000 on average across the whole US. So the difference between somebody who is an owner-occupant, like a homeowner, versus someone who is a renter, was like $270,000. So, I mean, we're seeing some of that impact, right? Because some of the money that you're paying, even though you're paying more than what it was to rent in a lot of cities, some of that money gets applied toward building up equity which counts toward net worth, right? Um, And you acquired that property earlier. So that also could impact some net worth as well. So in 291 cities, it was better for you to buy the owner-occupant property. And this just shows you the difference. In some cases, it's pretty significant, like millions of dollars difference. So it could be significantly different. Okay, so now let's kind of summarize some of these different things. So the difference in net worth, so I I have both of this broken up for average, and for median. So for average, if you buy the owner occupant property, your net worth at year 40, we kind of snapshot at year 40, is about $11 million. Where your net worth in year 40, if you decide to rent instead of buying an owner occupant property, is about $8.45 million. That's a difference of $2.6 million on average, or about 23.6% better for you to go buy an owner occupant property. And that's on average. On median, it's a little bit closer. On median, it's about 8.7 million versus 7.3 million, or about 1.3 million dollars difference. It's still better for you to buy the owner occupant, but the difference is between whether we look at an average or the median for all 304 cities. And so, in both cases, it's better, but the average is a little bit larger. Um. So the uh, the time it took you to be financially independent. This is where I start sounding really sleazy, like a late night infomercial sort of deal. Ready? So what if I could save you six years from having to work a job that you hate? Would that be worth, you know, seven payments of (laughs) $9.95? Oh, my gosh. That sounds so sleazy. But that's really what we're talking about, right? Like if if I showed you, look, hey, look. You're considering doing this 25% down strategy. Should you buy an owner occupant property at five percent down, or should you buy a uh, or should you rent to do the 25% down? Well, I'm telling you, look, if you do the if you buy an owner occupant property, on average, you will save 74.8 months. It's 74.8 months faster for you to be financially independent if you buy the owner-occupant property. Now, sure, there are ones that are much slower than that, there are ones that are much faster than that, and so it's really gonna be your city that you need to look at and determine that, but on average. It's about six years and two months, six years and almost three months faster for you to actually buy an owner-occupant property. That's on average. On median, it's even more. It's 104 months, which if my math is right, well, let me just do the math on the calculator rather than do this in my head. What's 104 months divided by 12? 8.6 years. So here's my sleazy late night infomercial type dealio. For only seven payments... Of $995, I could save you, what did I say? It was 8.6 years of working at a job that you hate just by changing one little thing about how you invest in real estate. Oh my gosh, it sounds so sleazy. But really, it's true. I mean, on median, the middlemost one, it is 8.6 years faster. Some are faster than that, some are slower than that, but I could save you a lot of time just by changing your strategy a little bit. Okay. Now let's talk about risk. We talked about net worth. We talked about, you know, the speeds of getting financial independence. So is it riskier to do the, you know, buy the owner-occupant property or to do the non-owner-occupant? Well, you know, part of it depends on how we measure risk. You know, we like to measure risk in a bunch of different ways. You know, one way is it's like how much rent can drop before you're going to have negative cash flow, like what we call rent resiliency, or how much prices can drop before you have negative equity, before you're underwater on your property, we call that price resiliency. Or we look at debt to income, which is a calculation your lender uses to determine whether or not you qualify for the loan. What is the ratio of all of your debt payments compared to how much you make on your job? I also like debt to net worth, how much debt you have compared to what your overall net worth is. If I tell you I have $10 million in debt, that might scare you. Because you probably think, oh, James, you know, earns, you know, $50 a year. (laughs) And having $10 million of debt with $50 a a year in income is really, really high. But what if I told you I make $100 million a year and I have $10 million in debt? Well, or or my net worth is $100 million. We're doing debt to net worth. My net worth is $100 million uh, and my debt is only $10 million. Well, that's a much different ratio. What if I told you there's $10 million in debt, but my net worth is $10 million? Well, that's more of a like a equal ratio and finding out which one has a higher debt to net worth is a way to measure risk. But the other one I like to is how much debt you have, you know, $10 million compared to how liquid you are. What if I told you I've got $10 million in debt, but I also have $12 million in stocks where I could go liquidate all those and use it to pay off my $10 million in debt? Well, that's, that's one level of risk. What if I told you I had $10 million in debt, but I only had... $50,000 in my savings account. Well, that's a little scarier, right? And so these measures of risk, including the number of months of reserves you have, right? You'd like to think about, hey, look, I want to have six months of reserves before I go buy my rental property. Well, we can also measure in number of months, right? You can figure out how much all the expenses are in order to maintain your rental properties and your personal expenses, stuff like that. And then we could say, okay, it costs me whatever it is, $12,000 to kind of, run my household and all my rental properties if i was getting no income coming in for my rentals well how many increments of twelve thousand dollars do i have if you have thirty six thousand dollars you have three months of reserves for your whole thing well if you had uh what did i say it was twelve thousand dollars? if you have one hundred twenty thousand, you have 12 months of reserves okay so we can measure all these different measures of risk and so when we look at it you know the average and the median change a little bit depending on which one you're looking at but overall I would say that buying an owner-occupant property is probably a little bit less risky. You know, in terms of rent resiliency, it's a little bit better than uh, than renting. In terms of total price resiliency, looks like the renting is a little bit better there, but it's a small amount, you know, 2% better. Uh, when you talk about debt to income, your debt to income is a little bit better when you have the owner-occupant property, okay? It's a little bit higher when you don't buy the owner-occupant property. And it probably is because, It takes longer to buy the properties. And so that could have an impact too. Um, and, And these risks, they can change over time, right? Like we could do a snapshot of what the risk looks like, you know, for the first five years. We could do a snapshot of what the risk looks like for the next five years or year seven or whatever we want to do. But this is showing you the risk over the entire 100 year period, which if you have a really long period of very low risk situation, then that could be outweighed by, you know, very risky stuff early on. So it's deceptive to look at this. I think you need to really drill down and look at this, but at least we give you a measure to look at risk, right? Uh, In terms of debt to income, a little bit better for you to buy the owner-occupant in this case. And uh, for the debt to net worth, a little bit better for you to have rented in that case. And debt to account balance, it's a little bit better for you to have bought the owner-occupant. And then for months of reserves, it was way better for you to actually buy the owner-occupant property because eventually that thing gets paid off and some of your expenses go down. So I think that that's a major factor in what's going on there. All right. So as I mentioned a couple of times throughout here, you could apply all the 88 strategies that we have to improve cash flow to get these numbers to look better, right? You know, at at least for the rental side of things. Now we've basically been using median price properties and what rent might be on each one of those properties. You should be able to choose and do better than this, right? I think if you do any type of effort in finding and selecting properties and applying any of these ADA strategies, you should be able to do better than what I've shown on here. And as I mentioned, if you're an expert in your market and you think my numbers are wrong, please do reach out so we can update those so that they get better for everybody. So in conclusion, in our current market conditions, our current prices, our current interest rates, our current rents, and it is uh, May 15th, 2023 when I'm doing this. And I'll do updates over time. I'm trying to do one of these classes a week as part of a series but we'll kind of go through all the different comparisons we've got, and then we'll come back and revisit and update things. And the website will get updated as I rerun numbers, because once I update prices and interest rates and things like that, I rerun everything. And so if you're visiting these charts on the website after this video, they may be different. They're likely to be different because prices and interest rates and everything else changes, which changes everything. Okay. So in our current market conditions, current price, current interest rate, current rents in about 304 US markets, using what I would consider to be less than ideal, medium price and rents on properties, buying an owner occupant property, when you would otherwise be buying 25% down rentals is a faster path to financial independence in 292 of 304 cities, about 96% of the cities. Okay, and for net worth, Buying an owner-occupant property first also gives you a higher net worth in 291 of the 304 cities, about 95.7% of them. The market does matter a little bit, but in general, you should probably buy an owner-occupant property. That is what the conclusion should be, okay? It is best if you look closer at your specific market and apply as many of the 88 cash flow-improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your implementation Again, go check out the real estate financial forward slash model to be able to see all the details. Hope you enjoyed this class. I hope you enjoyed the series. I I, I kind of like the comparison and dispelling some of the myths out there about should you do X versus Y and you know why it's always better to do Z versus R or whatever you're trying to do, right? Like the idea that people have these things in their mind, like, you know, oh, that's silly, James. Everybody knows that it's better to do this. Really? <laughs> really that that's that's a belief you have and then we go do the math we find out that maybe it's not even like the majority of the time that that is the case sometimes it is sometimes it's like this where it's like 96 percent of the time it's better to do one strategy than another but other times it's not nearly as close you know it's a third of the time or two-thirds of the time it's better to do this or half of the time it's better to do this and and sometimes it matters like what market you're in from a kind of like price where it's always better in more expensive markets to do it this way or it's always better in cheaper markets. So all these things matter and I think comparing them and and like learning about these different nuances can help you become a better overall investor and better at helping your friends and family when they tell you in their market that they're considering doing this and you're like that doesn't make any sense. We always do it this way. And maybe in your market that's true, but maybe in their market that's not true. So I don't know, a little bit of, uh, what is it, like, what what do they call it? A little bit of grace for other people and what they're choosing to do and how they're choosing to do it. Because it may not be the same for them as it is for you. I think that's one of the things we're we're kind of adjusting here and and realizing as we do these. All right, that's all I got for you. Have a great day, everybody. I will talk to you all soon. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates.